Well, it's been a big week for the Republican Party in the United States. A big week for one of its members, Congresswoman Liz Cheney, and maybe ultimately something of a tipping point for American politics. So it's hard to judge that amidst the multiple dramas convulsing their system right now. Liz Cheney's thrown down the gauntlet to her party, having been well and truly gazumped last week in the Wyoming primary that she won just two years ago easily uh, by the Trump-endorsed candidate Harriet Hageman. Uh, It was a contest she said she knew she'd lose. Now, this is a woman who's been dubbed as close as a politician gets to personifying the stars and stripes. But, of course, she's not in the Donald Trump camp and being knocked out of the modern Republican Party is the price you pay for speaking out against him. Here's a little of what she had to say in her concession speech. We must be very clear-eyed about the threat we face and about what is required to defeat it. I have said since January 6th, that I will do whatever it takes to ensure Donald Trump is never again anywhere near the Oval Office, and I mean it. This is a fight for all of us together. I'm a conservative Republican. I believe deeply in the principles and the ideals on which my party was founded. I love its history, and I love what our party has stood for, but I love my country more. So I ask you tonight to join me. As we leave here, let us resolve that we will stand together, Republicans, Democrats, and independents, against those who would destroy our republic. They are angry and they are determined, but they have not seen anything like the power of Americans united in defense of our Constitution and committed to the cause of freedom. Republican Congresswoman Liz Cheney, and do read the full speech if you have the chance. It's quite something. A true fight-back declaration, and it hints at how she might utilise her powerful status. To review recent developments in the Republican Party especially, as well as the broader US, I'm delighted that Thomas Mann, a senior fellow in governance studies at the Brookings Institute, could join us, along with Nick Bryant, who's now senior fellow at Sydney University, but previously, of course, was with the BBC and very well-versed in American political history, having completed a doctorate on the subject. Thank you both for joining me. Happy to be with you. Um, Tom Mann, one commentator I think put it quite well. Her defiant speech could be reduced to a single message. This is round one. Now, do you think that's fair? Uh, That that assumes that uh, there'll be a round two and three and four and five. Uh, uh, Certainly... Liz Cheney is a breath of fresh air in American politics, someone who speaks honestly about the radicalization of the Republican Party and, and its loyalty to the, the ultra-authoritarian uh, populist uh, Donald Trump. So it's, it's marvelous to have her uh, in this effort. Uh, she's She's the vice chair of the January 6th committee and has been doing a superb job with that. And that work will continue through through the fall. Um, I have no doubt Liz Cheney will will do everything she can to keep Donald Trump out of the White House. But the problem is that she has relatively little 
basis or power for doing uh, for doing that. Uh, number one and number two, even if she were successful, she'd leave behind a, a Republican Party that uh, is the least democratic hmm. uh, major party in uh, in the world. Well, uh, I mean, there's been a lot of commentary. I'm picking and choosing. But uh, one commentator said to save the party, she might first have to destroy it. So I don't think anybody's imagining that she's going to seriously get there in an orthodox way, whatever get there means. But might she not act as a sufficient spoiler to have to force the Republicans to think again a bit or not? Well, I would like her to be able to do that. But, you know, we have such a, a dreadful uh, political system. Uh, I wish we had ranked choice voting, uh, as, uh, as you Aussies do. Uh, uh, but third, third parties often, uh, or independent candidacies in the presidential election, can have uh, perverse effects. Uh, uh, she might threaten uh, Trump and the Republicans with with a run, but it's not obvious, A, that she would attract uh, major support, and two, who would she hurt most? So it's, it's good to have her thinking about this, to be so motivated, to look for ways of, uh, of, uh, of taunting Trump, of... Mm. Uh, Increasing the likelihood of uh, his uh, his troubles with the Justice Department, um, uh, and I wish her well. But I but I think uh, the road ahead is uh, is a very yeah. difficult one. Nick, We've had. Let, let me just go to Nick because you've got. I was thinking of an overview of history, looking at the role of Ross Perot uh, as a third party candidate, very well cashed up, of course, which allowed Bill Clinton to come through the middle. I don't think a lot of Republicans have forgotten that uh, back in the 90s. Um, how would you see her options? Rossborough is a really interesting case study because, as Tom will tell you, if you actually look at the polling afterwards about who was supporting Ross Perot, he was drawing equally uh, from Bill Clinton supporters and George uh, Herbert Walker Bush supporters. Um, it's become a bit of a historical myth that he was the guy that stopped George Herbert Walker Bush getting a second term in office, that his votes were just coming from the Republican side. If you actually look at the exit polling, he was getting a lot of support from the left as well. Um, and Ross Perot, of course, the proto-Trump. I mean, he was this yes. outsider, <laughs> this businessman, this slightly crazy guy that did crazy stuff. And, of course, he was uh, he foreshadowed the, the the run of Donald Trump. Look, uh, to continue your boxing analogy about round one, I mean, the battle for the soul of the Republican Party, the referee has already stopped the fight, Geraldine. <laughs> Trump has won. Um, and those moments which we thought could be moments of Trumpian repudiation. January the 6th, obviously, being the classic example of that, became moments of even further Republican radicalization. The attack on democracy didn't stop the moment that police and the National Guard restored order on Capitol Hill. That very night, more than half of the House Republicans went back into those chambers that had been invaded and voted to overturn the election, including the House 
minority leader Kevin McCarthy. And the attack on democracy has continued ever since. At state levels, they're passing voter suppression laws. They're mm. doing things that will subvert elections. And another moment of potential Trumpian repudiation, the FBI raid on Mar-a-Lago, another moment where the Republican Party thought, well, maybe we should see what happens here. Of course, again, this rallying around Trump. Um, he has won that battle. Liz Cheney is now an outlier in the American conservative movement. So you don't think that she represents the sort of now the loyal opposition? You, you just think she's too much, too isolated, do you? Uh, look, I think she represents a significant body in the electorate. I think there are sensible Republicans out there that rejected Trump at the last election. They don't much like Joe Biden. They might be attracted to a Liz Cheney. We, we don't know how that will play out. But I think what's what's really worrying, and Tom has done such brilliant work on this, is to see... Over the last 20 years, how moderate Republicans have been primaried out by more extreme Republicans and and radical Republicans have been primaried out by even more radical Republicans. And I think one of the things that has been shown over this primary season, which is deeply worrying, there are a lot of people in the Republican Party who are kind of fake big lie advocates. They go along with Trump, even though they don't really believe that Joe Biden stole the election. But what you've seen during this primary season, which is really worrying, is you have big lie, true believers, people who really do believe that Trump was swindled out of the election. Mm -hmm. And what we've seen over the past 60 years, really, in the Republican Party is these continual waves of radicalization. It began in 1964 with Barry Goldwater. So we had Goldwaterism, we had Reaganism, we had Gingrichism in the 90s, led by the House leader, uh, Newt Gingrich. We had Tea Partyism, Palinism. We had mm. Trumpism, and now, alas, we've got nihilism. Well, indeed, Tom, it is interesting that uh, others have suggested that most workable political parties around the world learn how to control their extremes. But actually, in the Republicans, the extremes, certainly these days, are writing the narrative. And it is worth, it's worthwhile being reminded of how this has bedeviled the Republicans which is strange given that they were the party of big money, you know, big decision-making for so many years, regarded as the, the really trustworthy ones on foreign policy and so on and so forth. So how, how do you see, is there any getting out of this? Uh, I wish I had a way out. A decade ago, I wrote a book with Norm Ornstein called it's even worse than it looks i remember that <laughs> it, it, it really <laughs> and now it's uh, even worse than it was when we said it was even worse than it looks it uh it's a it's a sad commentary but this is as nick said it's uh in, it's been present for a long time it's 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 uh, certainly coming out of uh the the attack on reconstruction in the 19th century and and the importance of race and eventually the 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 sorting of uh, parties by race uh, has made a huge difference in uh, in our politics and and it's the activist it uh, it's not just the wild crazy uh, people that you uh, we had Chuck Grassley, the quintessential establishment Republican senator from Iowa, on on television this weekend, talking about 
IRS agents armed with the AK-47s uh, attacking small businessmen because the budget for tax enforcement has increased. I mean, it's just, it's lunacy. And the chairman, uh, Senator Scott of Florida, of the of the senatorial campaign committee was speaking in the same language. Uh, Ted Cruz, it's it's all in one, and there's well, well, no now, that, one it, it, speaking it, like Liz Cheney in the Republican Party leadership. Yeah, cool-headedness. Yes, that's what seems to have gone. In fact, a, a very interesting remark by one commentator said, today's Republican Party is even <clears throat> more strongly motivated by what it hates than by necessarily admiring Trump. Now, I found that a very provocative statement, Nick Bryant. I wonder if that's right. You know, that there's something that's like, we're as mad as hell and we're just going to keep talking about it. So Trump is just a sort of cipher for this. I wonder what you think about that. Look, I think negative partisanship has been such a driver of American politics for so many years now. It's the hatred of the opposition rather than the love of your own side. Um, The hatred of Hillary Clinton was such a key factor in getting Donald Trump uh, to victory. And I think that's a a really important point. But, you know, there is this groundswell for Donald Trump. I, I think one of the great analytical mistakes that we made in 2015 and 2016 when we were watching Donald Trump was to use this cliche, he is mounting a hostile takeover over of the Republican Party. Geraldine, there was massive buy-in at the grassroots. Mm-hmm. And that moment he came down the golden escalator and started railing against Mexican immigrants. I mean, often that's seen as this moment when he established this visceral connection uh, with the people in the conservative movement. But he'd been doing that for years as the untitled leader of the Bertha movement and his attacks on uh, 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 Barack Obama. And that was a classic case, uh, to go back to your question, You know, by that stage, the Republican Party really didn't stand for much other than its opposition to Barack Obama. So it made complete sense for them to pick as their presidential nominee the most emphatically anti-Obama candidate, and that, of course, was Donald J. Trump. Right. Now, you wrote recently, Nick Bryant, um, that uh, observance of the rule of law is is virtually... a almost akin to a religion in the US, um, despite all, well, I'm going to test whether it, despite all that you say about divisions, that this is a sacred thing. Um, and therefore, this might be something. So the raid on Mar-a-Lago, you know, at the observation of the rule of law, as as the Attorney General outlines it, um, could well be something that looks so incredibly inflammatory, but ultimately will be followed through as something that, you know, we're Wherever you are, you you effectively observe the fact that the American rule of law is being enacted. Now, just develop that would for us, please. Will it cut across all of this protest that you're talking about? Um, I was actually quoting Lincoln. Um, it's nice to be given Lincoln's oh, words, but they, they were they were actually Abraham Lincoln. He okay. spoke of up, upholding the U.S. Constitution and um, the rule of law as the political religion of America. Um, he he spoke about that in 1861. It's actually on the eve of the American Civil War, so a kind of worrying portent there in some ways. Um, but uh, look, I mean, I've been in the camp that thought it's just not worth it prosecuting Trump. There would be such a violent backlash. There are so many violent potentialities, especially now that the American conservative movement essentially has a paramilitary wing. 
in the Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers and all those militia groups. I just thought it was too dangerous. But, you know, watching the January the 6th hearings and seeing the evidence of such flagrant criminality in Trump's attempt to overthrow the election, you couple that with what he was doing in Georgia, you know, asking the Republican Secretary of State there to conjure up an extra 1,600 votes. I mean, if America is a serious country, if the rule of law is to stand for anything... Surely there does have to be a prosecution if that is where the evidence leads. I think there will be a backlash, but there may be some sort of historical lessons that we can draw from the the 1950s and the 1960s when Southern governors who didn't want to desegregate their universities and schools defied federal court orders in Eisenhower and Kennedy um, deployed troops in the South and, and stood them down. And, and at the time, there was this fear there's going to be another sort of Confederate rebellion and we're going to be in a state of civil war. It didn't happen because they asserted the primacy of the law. And in my view, that's what needs to happen now. Um, Tom Mann, is the only hope for those who wish to see some restoration of centrism then that Donald Trump will be pinged one way and the other by all these investigations, much as people say like Al Capone was got with, you know, tax evasion, <laughs> not uh, gun running. Is that, is that some, does that offer some hope? Uh, it's a piece of it. Uh, it's, it's a necessary but not sufficient condition for, uh, for getting out of the mess our political system is in is in right now. The governors uh, you talk about are now, sadly, have have become Trumpist and are as radical in their actions and and as vehement in pursuing culture wars as anything going on among Trump's uh, loyal uh, loyal supporters. So this is. This is a bigger problem. But remember, uh, uh, victories and losses occur at the margins. Um, Our country is divided. Uh, If we had a national popular vote, uh, Republicans uh, under their current ideology and leadership would never be in the White House at all. But we don't. And uh, it's possible to win by seven or 10 million votes in the country and lose the electoral college. It's, uh, it's possible to do similar things in winning majority votes for the Senate and end up uh, uh, with a minority. We have minority rule in this country. And the only hope is, is that the, the reaction of, of uh, mm-hmm. January 6th of Mar-a-Lago, but importantly, the Roe v. Wade decision uh, as well, and the reaction against many people uh, uh, to to much of what has been going on in the culture wars of DeSantis and Hawley and Cruz and the like will will defy historical records for midterm losses by the uh, by the president's party and actually allow. A democratic victory. It's unlikely, but this is the most unlikely, unlikely time in American <laughs> history. And just a very quick final remark from you, Nick. Oh, look, um, 
Disunion in America has always been the default setting. I mean, it's interesting that Tom mentioned the Reconstruction era after the Civil War. Um, you know, they say that America hasn't been as divided as this since the 1960s. I think there's a real 1960s vibe at the moment, which is really worrying. I don't think we're inexorably leading uh, to a civil war. But I think the best we can hope for with the two Americas at the moment is is a state of peaceful coexistence with occasional violence. And I, I fear that the violence is going to be, the political violence could be, more regular and routine than that and that, and that that is a real worry and and it it breaks my heart Geraldine one of the reasons why I'm sat in Australia this morning rather than sat in America where I was this time last year um you know we had an American daughter um and we just wanted to protect our American daughter from America it had just got that bad and um it breaks my heart to say that mm. That is uh, pretty, Nick, uh, I feel th- the same way as you. It is a pretty awful. It is pretty awful to hear you say that, Nick. I mean, you said it to us before. Okay, Tom Mann from the Brookings and Nick Bryant, author of When America Stopped Being Great. It's a Bloomsbury publication. Thank you both very much indeed. My pleasure. Thank you.